0: The Family Jewels True Crime Podcast. My name is Brian Soubleuxski. Welcome to episode twenty-one. Wow, episode twenty-one. Looking for love in all the wrong places. Um, a song, country song, I remember from back in the eighties, and uh, it was it was like a top forty hit. And um, I posted a ad for this week's episode and had that song in the background because you can do wonderful things on TikTok, man. I'm 51 years old and I'm crushing TikTok videos for my other business. If anybody is ever interested in seeing, uh, what I do in my other life, my full-time job, uh, check out Brian Sobolewski, The Ramp Method, R-A-M-P, stands for Restore, Align, Maintain, and Progress. And, uh, Check that out on Facebook. I got a ton of uh, videos up there uh, explaining my method of exercise and how um, hopefully it uh, it will someday change the way people think about, uh, or the way they look at the human body. And, and I have been working diligently to try to get this part of my life settled, meaning in a place that it actually produces I don't know, some sort of wealth. I'm sick of being fucking poor, I can tell you that. But looking in, looking for love in all the wrong places, uh, I was going to have it be an entire retrospective of all the relationships that I've ever had up to this point. Maybe give you a little perspective on uh, the situation I found myself in at Pondville State Prison. Like I've said before, it's just... You, you get yourself into a routine in prison, and uh, this I can understand after being in Ponville Why so many convicts choose to wrap up their entire sentence in higher security? Kev and Dad never went to minimums because that, and they heard from me: "Don't go, it sucks." um you work your ass off they work you to the bone you're always getting jammed up and stupid shit like i've told you about in the last episode with that kid that stole the cell phone and people are always shoving shit up their ass and trying to sneak it into the minimum security it's just like like just just follow the fucking rules but i i guess if if these were people that had done that they wouldn't be where they are but you it's amazing how they continue Like, I seriously feel guilty if I jaywalk at this point and there are people that are, you know, on their fourth and fifth bid. And again, I'll say it again, uh, those are the people that I will always, you could come down and an alien could sit on my face and I will not look cross-eyed at that any, you know, any more than I would at somebody who tells me they've been to prison more than once. It scares the death out of me even now just thinking of oh shit I you know getting caught up in something or ever being you know when you hear about people getting put in prison for being innocent well I'm not uh, I've never been innocent so it it's something that that is always um kind of feel it like a monkey on your back especially since having been there and it just it it baffles me so, I'm sticking trash on Massachusetts highways down on the South Shore, and coming back, you get pretty tired, man. You're walking, and if if it's cold, um, which it was, I I was there very early spring, late winter, out on in in Massachusetts. That's a toss up. So early spring, late winter, you know, that's the coin you flip. You'll get one day where it's 70 and you're like, oh my God, finally we made it to the end. But, and then the next day it's, you know, 20 below with a wind chill and it's gray and it's spitting this. It's not even raining. It's just (laughs) spitting. You just feel like you're getting spit on all day. And the, the, it's weird to be out in the world at this point as an inmate. This is another reason why I see that people want to wrap up behind a wall. Because being out on the highway watching life um, go by, literally, picking up the trash of people that are living free, it was it was torture walking by a Papa Gino's, man. I would give my <laughs> left nut, don't know who would want it, or why they would give me a Papa Gino's pizza for it, but I would give my left nut for one right now. I could sit and eat an entire an entire large cheese pizza. Mostly because it was nostalgic. And I've told you, I think I talked about Caldor. Mom bringing me to Caldor as a kid, bringing all of us to Caldor. You know, Kev would get thrown out or he'd be doing something else somewhere. And I always went right for the toy aisle and then right for the candy aisle. I'd get a full thing of Skittles. A family-sized thing of Skittles. Or Mike and Ike's. Those were the two things that I liked. And it was also symbolic and nostalgic because if you were ever kept behind in school, like a half day, and it was just you and mom, that was the shit. She would get a picture of Bear at Papagino's and I would murder a small cheese. I was little. I always burned my mouth on it. Always. I, I've scarred the roof of my mouth. From Papa Gino's Pizza Eating it too soon And this was back in the time When you, they had those little jukeboxes Like right on the table a Little tiny jukebox Throw a quarter in And it blurted out Some stupid song for you And great I've talked about this before And I want to talk about it again Because it's fun for me um, I, w- I would Oh my god Just to have one of those right in my face right now, there's no good pizza. It's it's a shame how how few places can get a pizza right. You know, yeah, great. You can throw some sauce on a piece of dough and che- over cheese it. And then if you say light cheese, it's like they're insulted. Like they'll sneeze a piece of cheese on it or something. You know what I mean? Like if you ever ordered light cheese pizza, it, they treat you like a vegan piece of shit. They're like, oh, this fucker. Light cheese, my ass, and you just get a smattering of it. Like, come on, man. There's a happy medium there, fatty. <laughs> so you're out on the out on the streets, man, walking around and looking at all the shit that you uh, you couldn't walk in. You would get lugged if I was sticking trash down Route One in Foxborough after a game. Now you're walking past tons of little businesses, ton- Dunkin' Donuts, man. Understand I haven't touched anything like a donut in, you know, close to three years. I'm eating prison food. There was a guy at Pondville that had a couple cells down from me. Huge. He was the fattest guy I've ever seen. Fat in a way that was, you know, there's fat and then there's like, dude, there's, your body doesn't have any more room to stuff fat in and it. And you're still He he got entomans somehow Entomans like boxes of it The chocolate chip cookies He got the cakes And he would just sit in his cell And plow through it Plow through it I offered him Money Cash money Like 10 bucks Because To eat one of those entomans, Little mini chocolate chip soft cookies Just to have a box of them Was like having a kilo of cocaine Seriously. And he had them. And he said he would sell me a box. And uh, never would. Like, I, it would come to the time, hey, where, where are those cookies? Oh, yeah, I'll get them tomorrow. And then, you know, he'd come in with crumbs all over his face. And you're like, dude, <laughs> sell me some fucking cookies. But there's the, you, there's nothing like that in prison. The vending, Even the vending machine food is just full of Doritos and stuff. Sort of have a you know Boston cream donut from Dunkin Donuts would just light up my life and you can't and you're walking by it every day and you're walking through a world while well, the whole world's looking at you they know who you are they know what you're doing people would drive by you know other ex-cons that had gotten out would drive by hey guys <laughs> you're gonna wrap up soon don't worry about it but Ponville as I've said is the place that so many so many of the things that I hoped to have avoided happened so one morning it, it, and Eric and I are getting along fine my cellmate Eric Partak I hate him and he's everything about a male that I can't stand you know he's blustery he's a tough guy shot a drug deal and then ratted everybody out um, but He's lifting. He's a huge kid, but there's something about the the respect that somebody like that almost demands. You know what I mean? Like the way that he talks to you. And he had this friend. Oh, my God. I'm not going to talk about this friend. I'm going to do a whole episode on his friend. Because we get into it, me and this prick. And he's from Brockton. And I've mentioned before my displeasure and distaste of... Brockton in general and I hate blaming a geography for anything but I'm going with my majority of thinking in every person in my life that I've met from Brockton I had disliked and have had a problem with like, like serious conflict <laughs> Bearden, Bobby Bearden was from Brockton and this idiot that Eric hung out with all the time Um, but we'll get into that. One morning, Eric and I wake up and we're waiting for count and count wasn't happening and count was like clockwork. This was a Saturday and it's not like weekends were no different, but we're waiting for count because we wanted to get up and, you know, do Saturday things, but you know, weekends were, were particularly bad there's just nothing to do there's only so much of you know when i say we had tvs we just had basic tv like back when you when you were a kid we had like six channels you had four five seven twenty five and a 38 i remember that and that's pretty much how it was there unless they were playing a movie but you know you see the movie and then they just play it over and over and over and over again all weekend It's not like they have a bunch of movies. It wasn't HBO or like some movie channel that you could choose. So that was just horrifically boring. That's what drives you the craziest. And we noticed there's no count. We take a peek out the window and we are in lockdown. Like nobody announces announces this. I don't know when these armored cars and vans and, and trucks rolled in to camp. But we were basically uh, surrounded by state police officers with machine guns. Like, it was was frightening. And, you know, one of the unit guys, one of the guards come down. And, you know, people would come out, you know, peek out their cell and say, hey, what's going on? And nobody would say a thing. And they come over the loudspeaker and they say, and you're waiting and waiting and waiting. So now you know something's up and you're not sure what the hell's going on. Nobody will tell you anything. And then they announce over the loudspeaker that when your name is called, you are to report to the cafeteria. And that was it. So we're sitting around and names start getting called. And no one knows, you know, what is the rhyme or reason why these names are being called and what's happening to these people. So, boom, Soboluski, Let's go. I go down to the cafeteria and sitting there is a nurse and more state police officers. The place is just packed. They're everywhere. All of them armed uh, and just not looking pleasant. I sit down at the table and the nurse is starts pulling out stuff to withdraw blood. And uh, a guard who is sitting with her slides a piece of paper over to me and he says, this is a mandate from Massachusetts, whatever, blah, 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 that says we are allowed to keep your DNA on file as a violent offender. They said, we are going to take this blood from you and if you refuse to let us have it, we will bring you to Walpole right now. Right to Seg. Right to the hole. Sign this piece of paper or pack it up. <laughs> and there's no packing it up. Somebody would pack my shit up for me as Eric stole everything from it because who the fuck, I probably would never see them again. And that—that that is what I am presented with one sunny Saturday morning. And I signed it. I signed it, and I let them take my blood. And the once everybody and Eric, who was a violent offender, was not his. His blood was not taken. Upon further investigation, Massachusetts instituted, instituted some program that said that you know for a specific list of crimes or number of so since the four charges, felony charges, that I was in prison for were all violent. And they were all on, like, Massachusetts has this list of ten offenses that if you're convicted of, um, preclude, uh, you know, preclude you? No. Um, I don't know the word I'm looking for, damn it. Um, exclude you. Yeah, there you go. Exclude you from any uh, any job within Massachusetts government or you know, that's where the background checks, they're like, nope, nope, nope. Like an extra double secret probation no-no. And the my four crimes were on this top ten list. All of them. So it put me in this category of, you know, a specific degree of violent offender. Now, Eric blew somebody's face off with a shotgun. But, uh, no. They didn't want his blood. So, this was battled, like, all the way to the uh, Massachusetts Supreme Court, or, or whatever high court there is, and and they shot it down. They said that this is unconstitutional. You cannot take somebody's DNA against their will. I mean, essentially, they were saying, listen, we're taking it, or fuck you. You're, you know, they're waving Walpole over your head, so... I gave it up. Take all the blood you want, dude. But it's scary because this is now on file. And imagine it gets mixed up. And see, that's the stuff. I don't know what the argument was against it being, you know, unconstitutional or or legal at all. Like like the Supreme Court said, this is really no. It didn't take long for them to say, okay, uh, I got a letter saying that they destroyed my DNA. Um, I don't know where they were gonna keep it or what they were gonna do with it, but it's pre- it was pretty fucking scary, man. Imagine they take a little bit of your blood, they decide like they pull an OJ on you, drop some blood droplets at a crime scene, and uh, you know, Bri's going away forever. I don't shit's fucked up. But uh, after that, wasn't long after that that I got it. Uh, called I don't know I honestly don't know how I fell into this situation but I ended up I think they were looking for somebody with a college degree so there were jobs available that you could so I could get off the the highway crew and go work in the kitchen or I could do whatever other departments they had they had a maintenance which was like just grounds crew stuff you just did landscaping of the prison And it was just a tough job. Kitchen was really tough. You worked breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And it was just, you had to clean the whole place. It was a tough job to do for very little pay and very little good time. So what's the point? It it broke the monotony. And especially for a lot of these guys, dude, there's still so many of them, you know, I told you, not very educated. Not a lot of them could read. So, you know, other than TV, there's work. And there was a cottage that that's what we called it but it was a house this was a i don't know seven or eight bedroom house it was huge and it was a white house with green shutters and it was adjacent to and a little off to the left um from the front front of pawnville I had no idea what was in this little house. I thought it was part of a minimum or a release, like they had the Massachusetts symbol on the front. But I get called over to there to interview for a job as data entry. Really interesting shit going on in this cottage, man. Really interesting because um, all of every single department in the state. So you're a DA. You have an office. You need a desk boom, you send off an invoice to this cottage or you send off an order form to this cottage and we get an invoice and and you paid for it with your budget. These budgets, if you didn't spend them all, and, you know, I don't know how many departments had extra cash at the end of the year, but if they did, it was taken out of their budget for the next year. So there was not a single department that didn't want to spend all of their budget. So they'd order like these really beautiful desk chairs and desks and tables and all of this stuff was really well made by um, this end up, which we've, we've talked about before, which I finally, uh, my friend Patty told me all of the furniture at Brookside Hospital was made by this end up. And this end up is a company that uh, inmates assemble and make all of their furniture that that labor force is less than children are making in China. I would wager, cause the, I mean, it's like twenty five cents a day you made, or a dollar twenty five a day is what I was making on the road crew. Dollar twenty five a day. I am um, busting my ass, by the way. You are driving down four ninety five right now, listening to this podcast in Massachusetts. I cleaned that shit. <laughs> I swept that shit, man. I took pride in my work. I found a dryer out there one time. Somebody chucked a dryer on the side of the road. It's amazing. The shit that they throw out there. Um, so I go over to this cottage and I interview with this kid. He's an inmate, and no one in the prison liked him. Nobody liked Josh, man. Nobody liked this kid. He was meek, um, g- totally gay, or very effeminate, kind of gay. And it's amazing how many people I describe like that in prison. But uh, super smart, though. I think the, I think he was a little bit like Sheldon Cooper on Big Bang Theory, you know, the genius kind of lent to, um, uh, you know, a, a gender, like, he seemed more feminine, but it, it, I think when you're at that level of intelligence, like, shit like that doesn't matter to you, like, like, your brain is above it, like, you don't give a shit, or maybe it's just because you've been bullied your whole life because you're nerdy. Um, but the reason why none of the inmates liked him and nobody talked to him was because he was there for vehicular homicide. He killed a wife and a mother and daughter, and the daughter was seven, and uh, both dead on the scene, and he survived. And inmates, that is that's a crime that you, you no one will talk to you. It's like a scarlet letter. Um, he was doing seven years. He was on the um, he was at the tail end of it because he was in the minimum. And I don't know, I, f- I felt for him, man. I, you know, you made a mistake and and it and it you paid the ultimate price and so did two other people for your mistake. Did I hate him? I don't know. You know, I have to, you know, you have to not talk to him, but I worked with him every day. So I had a desk next to his. And basically we would, uh, when mail came in, You'd open up all of these orders. You'd enter in the orders into the computer. And it worked for these two ladies. Couldn't tell you what either one of their names was right now. One of them was a dark complected, kind of Italian looking woman, really raspy voice. They both smoked. The other woman was this spunky, short, really thin, you could tell she enjoyed a cocktail. She smoked like a chimney. She, they were both nice ladies, they were funny, but they both played, you know, different games with different inmates. So instantly, the first thing that I noticed was that Josh could take some of his money, give it to them when they were going to Dunkin' Donuts and get stuff. And, they, you know, they would ask me what I would want. And I'm like, holy shit, are you kidding me? Like, I'm, I'm, I, somebody's asking me what I would like to order from a Dunkin' Donuts? That's insane. I've been walking by them for the, you know, past couple months and... Shit, yeah. I ordered a bacon and cheese thing with the, you know, the some muffin sandwich. And it was fucking amazing. It was amazing. And I'm like, wow, this is a decent gig. And then there was a boss. There was a guy, uh, I don't know. The guy was a douche, I can tell you that. He, he gave me a sub one day, so he was all right. <laughs> but um, it was amazing the amount of money, the orders that we were taking in. So I would just sit at this computer all day and, and when there wasn't anything to do, I was put in charge of they had one of the things that um, people would order would be Massachusetts state flags. So the, the Massachusetts state symbol and then just an American flag. And they had all of them in every size you could possibly imagine up in an attic on these shelves. So I was charged with. Um, they were in boxes on the floor, and they were there were some up on the shelves with um, categorizing by size these flags, and so that when you know people ordered them, I could just pop on up there, grab a couple things, and throw them in a FedEx box, and then I, you know it was a it was like an office job. I was I was running an office, and this is where I met Sharon. Now, at no point do I strike up conversations with these people. you're an inmate, you're an untouchable, you and you're around people, regular people and you listen to them talk about their regular lives and and you, I just kept my mouth shut. I didn't engage, you know, I didn't think I could. and there were other offices and there were other secretaries and uh, I don't know if they were secretaries or if that word's fallen into disrepute, but there were other office, she was one of them but she was in a department I had I had I, I rarely ever ran into her except when I was at the copier so I would have to copy photocopy invoices or orders for some reason and triplicates and I don't really remember the details of the job nor is it important but I would find reasons to go out to that copier because she was just so cute She had these, she was a little nerd. She had these little glasses and, uh, she was very thin, like olive oil thin. Um, she had some kids and one day the, the dudes that worked for her was Donovan, Donovan and I can't remember the other guy's name, two black guys that lived at the end of my block that were so cool, Matt. They were really cool dudes. You know what I mean? They didn't. They didn't like that that other guy that, that did the vehicular homicide. They played by the rules too, but they were just cool. Every once in a while, I'd just pop down to the cell and chit-chat with them because they were they were all right. And Donovan worked at a desk right across from her doing kind of the same shit that I was doing for these other two ladies. One day he comes into the office and he goes, oh, I got a letter here It was put in our box by mistake. And he gives me this little tiny plastic... I don't know where it was from. It was it. It was like the shape of a band aid almost, and it had the Hershey Hershey Kiss symbol on it. It almost looked like a sticker that they would use to close the bag or reseal it or something. And she sent Sharon gave it to this inmate to bring to me. And he's like, "Hey, Sharon told me to give this to you." I'm like, "What?" She's like, "Yeah." He's like, "Yeah." And I'm like glad it didn't wasn't coming from you, dude. I don't feel that way about you, but, uh, alright. And I, I wasn't sure what to do with that. Like, what? So I went over and, and, um, she was at the copier, and we started talking. And it wasn't long before I was taking my lunch into her office. Most of the inmates would go down, or go sit outside and eat their lunch. Um, I went into the office and hung out with Sharon, and it wasn't long before we were writing notes to each other, and, you know, this was our way of of talking um, outside of work or in ways that we couldn't at work, and I'm calling it work, but, you know, it was slave labor for me. And this went on for a while before we ever became physical. Now, I'm trying to be as smart as possible about this situation because this was this bright, shining star of light. Just, it was respite. It was a break, a break from feeling the way. I, I had been feeling every second of every day once my mother was diagnosed, knowing that I was losing precious time with her, that she was going through treatment by herself, that she was overloaded with stress and all of this fucking stuff, and there's nothing you can do about it. Every call I made to her was just, whoa, whoa, whoa. And it, it just kept piling and piling and piling. And part of why it was so stressful was because... She was coming to visit, and we were having some pretty deep conversations, but we had one pretty deep conversation that was very difficult to get through, and uh, we'll talk about that in a sec. So, mom comes down to visit me one weekday. It was nighttime. I remember that, and she, it was always very stressful. So always very stressful to sit and try to have that hopeful conversation that everybody, I'm sure, in, that, in her shoes listens to and, like, you just don't believe it. Like, oh, the, the treatment's going to work and, you know, you'll be fine and you're going to be around. And this was not that visit. This was the visit where mom completely resigned herself. To the idea of dying She wanted to talk to me About How she saw her The end of her life And the, She begged me And I've never really Never really seen my mother beg before But she begged me Not To let her die Anywhere but her house she wanted to be in her house and in her room surrounded by her family. And that was... That's impossible. We couldn't do that. Kev wasn't going to be out. So that that was always a topic of our conversation. I i didn't know that I was going to make it out in time. Because she it was just getting worse and worse. And she knew and when we sat down and I tried to dole out that hand of cards, you know, that hand of hope, you might, yeah, you'll see Kev get out, don't worry. She said, stop it. She said, cut it out. She said, Now I, I just, the only way I can get through this is if I know I'm, I'm leaving something behind for my kids, so. She made me executor of her will. And this wasn't something I was expecting. I had no idea. I wasn't even thinking ahead to that part. Um, And my mother was very smart. My mother knew that, um, you know, you'd be taxed like crazy. And she knew that um, in some of those situations, and I don't think that this was the case in New Hampshire, but in Massachusetts, when you go, when you die... Your estate goes into probate, and it's like a ninety-day period that any creditor that has an outstanding balance of yours can come claim and and get, which is pretty fucked up. You got a credit card, and you die and have a balance on it. Credit cards can eat it. Are you kidding me? And th- th- it just drove her nuts that that was um that that could happen because she was carrying like a $10,000 balance. Now, a lot of that balance was charged up post-diagnosis. You know, she wanted a a rip and spend and spree and, you know, she bought some nice furniture for the house. She She was really intent on dying in her home and she wanted to be surrounded by whatever family was available. Now, I can also tell you but this was a period that her two sisters' uh, mum was the youngest, I think, yeah. And, uh, Chuchy Franny and Chachi Gladys, and Chachi means uh, aunt in Polish or Russian or German, because that's just, <laughs> Poland is an amalgamation of those three cultures, really. I mean, Germany took it, and Russia took it, it was a, it was a pivotal uh, country for those two places and um so our borders changed multiple times isn't it's insane but um so her two sisters my mom's two sisters were not getting along with each other and refused to be in the same room with each other so neither one of them would visit my mother while she was sick and going through this to help or do anything Chuchi Franny was way better But they really didn't want to Share the same space at any point And it just It sucked You know My mom My mom got along with both of her sisters And tried so hard to, to Keep them in her life That she was really hurt by this So That just made things worse so here I am listening to my mother talk about how, you know, she was so savvy when she wanted to be. She uh, got herself a lawyer. She put her entire estate in a limited liability, an LLC. And it meant that it didn't. no one could touch it, that it was mine once, uh, once she passed away. And it, it, you know what? The credit card company called and said, yeah, I'd like to talk to Lucille Rooney. And it was so, I'll tell you, it was uh, it was liberating to say, "Nah, she's gone. Oh, when will she be back? <laughs> she ain't. She's dead. Oh, and they had just asked for a death certificate." But um, being in charge of her estate was an enormous responsibility. It's not. It wasn't an estate. You're talking about a hundred grand at tops. But she wanted to uh, talk about what she wanted done, and you know. It was an uncomfortable conversation, but at the same time, it was very comfortable because it was finally acceptable to talk about the fact that this was the point of no return. We can hope all we want, but, um, you know, it, it, it helped push me anyway into a level of acceptance that, you know, and with all the therapy that I've gotten through my life, there's a gift in cancer. There's a gift in a terminal illness in that. At least you know how, you know, relatively how much time you have left as opposed to a car accident or being shot, you know, the day, you know, never expect it. And uh, you're gone. So we did a lot of those conversations as uncomfortable as they were. Just, you know, brought me helped heal old wounds while causing new ones um so Sharon was and this this is where you know all of my years of of psychology um make me put on different glasses and realize how absolutely sick this Sharon situation was because um it was, We started meeting in the flag room. So, we would write notes to each other. And, like, she would go home at night and write me a three- and four-page note. God, I wish I still had them, man. My grandmother, Babunia, kept all of my letters. And I threw them out. I was like, what the fuck am I ever going to want with these again? Somebody out there might have some of my letters still, but, uh, you know... I don't know why. So... She would write me three and four-page letters, and when you came back from the cottage, we got strip-searched a lot. And, you know, I told you before that, you know, crews were randomly strip-searched, and that was a policy until the cell phone thing happened. And then they would ease off, and then some idiot would do something else, and then it's hey, every crew, every inmate that comes in and out of the, or goes out of this place is being strip searched. So it just holds up the day; it makes your day even longer to have to sit and wait for some idiot to, to come over and take off all your clothes, for. and and I was always paranoid that they were going to find this note from this state employee, and she was going to get bagged. It it was. But that was, of course, part of the appeal of this whole situation, and the the letters started. You know, it was like we were dating. It felt so much like a high school romance, and and it was just so naughty. It was just so naughty. I, you know, there was little to nothing risk for me. So she gets back. She's getting fired. That that that's a big deal to her. Man, she got a she got kids and and mouths to feed. But boy was it a bright shining shining sunshine of uh distraction and that's exactly what i used it for and we would meet in the flag room constantly and you know i'm not going to get graphic but it was a good time and i would go and have lunch in her office kind of randomly not as i couldn't do it every day because she had this woman that was her boss that Boy, she was easy to skedaddle on because she was just enormous. And she had, she hit, her feet hit the ground like an elephant foot. Mm -hmm. It literally, like a velociraptor, no, the uh, T-Rex. It literally shook the ground. Like you could just look down at your drink and be like, oh shit, she's coming. And, but she was very nosy and can. Uh, constantly asked, why is he in here? So I backed off of that because we were meeting in different places in the cottage. So when it wasn't the flag room, there was this, uh, the staff could go down a back set of stairs into a little kitchen that, uh, you know, you'd bring your lunches and you could go and chill out that was separate from the inmates that we weren't allowed in. But I was all over that place. For some reason, you know this. Josh, the dude that that um, I talked about a second ago, he ended up moving on. He ended up getting out, so I took over his role because it, it really was an intricate system. It re- there was a lot of shit to do, and you needed to be on your game. And they needed somebody that had a decent amount of time because it wasn't the job that you there were. You, they would need three other inmates to do what one, you know, somewhat educated inmate could do. And so I, I was valuable. That's what I said. The boss brought me a half of one of his subs one day. Oh, I ate it in the flag room. Um, Might have been better than the other stuff that was going on with the, with Sharon. Um, but, but the sickest, the just absolute sickest part of this entire story in this entire situation with her. And and what I mean by the fact that you put on your Freud glasses, that if you looked at Sharon, put her next to my mother, uh, wow. Wow. Like, it, dist- like, wow. Disturbing. Like, holy shit, you can make some connections with that. Like, I... I uh, it, it just slapped me. And, um, at that point she had started to pull away a little bit. Like we weren't meeting as many times in the hallways and stuff like that. And I went in and I sat down for lunch one time and I asked her one question and she turned and she goes, can't you see I'm fucking busy? What are you even doing in here? I was like, uh, oh, uh, right. <laughs> I was about to eat this uh, sandwich they call chicken. There was this, They used to serve this thing for lunch that looked like an actual chicken ate something and then regurgitated it onto a piece of bread. It was vile and and they called it chicken salad. It was like uh, chicken salad tapioca pudding. Because there were these little gel balls. Blech, blech, blech. I don't even want to talk about it anymore. Let's move on. Um, and that's what I was eating. And I get, she snaps. Boom. Wow. Vicious tongue on that one. So I was like, okay, doke. And I get up and I leave. And I think I came back one other time that day and got the same response. She was on the phone. She would kind of turned away. And she just stiff, cold, alright, message received. So this is the point that um, I get very, very, uh, this is, this is, I'm nearing and orbiting a point that I snap. And uh, I get into a physical altercation with Eric's uh, friend. And we're going to talk about that next week. So I'm going to end this episode, episode 21, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. I think we covered everything that I wanted to cover the whole Sharon thing just don't you know don't fall in love in prison <laughs> is the point point? and uh I don't know when I told you that I oh I told you back a couple episodes ago that I did have a relationship with a guard or somebody like that I, was, I should have just said I did have sex in prison <laughs> had you guys thinking that that maybe it was me and Eric but no 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 that is uh that's not the way it happened I uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. I loved making it. Uh, I love talking about this stuff because it really brings up. It, it just, I don't know. It for so long in my life, I have looked for ways to process this stuff and to talk about it and and to, you know, just verbalize some of the stuff. And it's amazing the details I remember now as opposed to how I would have told this story ten years ago. I I and and I think I'm getting into some cracks and crevasses, (laughs) crevices in my brain, and uh, it's been fun, so thank you so much, and uh, I will talk to you guys next week for uh, episode 22, which I think I'm going to call Triple Tap, um, because this is the funniest fucking fight I've ever been in, and uh, we'll talk about that next week. Take care, guys.